Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. The title of the message is Thou Shalt Not Covet or Lust. I finished, I think, about four messages this week. And uh, I, I've been really praying the Lord would give me the messages that His people need. And I think uh, this is one of them. And I'm looking forward to the next three already. But if you look in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, the Word of God says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. I would imagine that this commandment, this prohibition, has been violated, transgressed, and disobeyed quite frequently. While many people would not actually steal, they would covet. While many would not actually commit adultery, they will covet. The Hebrew word for covet is the word kamad, and it literally means to desire, to covet, to take pleasure in, to delight in, and to greatly desire. Covetousness appears to be a sin that can be increased by degrees, simply because there is what you and I would call a simple lust or a simple coveting, and then there is a burning with desire type of lust and coveting as well. Interestingly enough, covetousness is an invisible sin to begin with. It does not remain invisible. I could not look in your mind and see whether or not you're coveting. Neither could you look in my mind. But coveting, while it is invisible, is more than a thought. It's more than an emotion because it involves an illegal or an unlawful taking. That is, something is totally and absolutely forbidden. And what we're trying to do when we covet is to attach something or someone to ourselves that is forbidden. So at the beginning, covetous may be simply a thought or a desire, but in the end it always involves conduct and action. Now I made the statement, thou shalt not covet or thou shalt not lust. Let me explain why I said that. I want you to turn, holding Exodus chapter 20, but turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. Romans 7 and verse 7. Look what the Apostle Paul says. Romans 7 and verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Now the interesting thing is the Greek word for covet in Romans 7 and verse 7 is epithumeo. And it literally means to have a desire for, to long after, to desire, to lust after, and to coveting. And to covet. So coveting is a desire and seeking after that which is forbidden. Now listen to me. Coveting and lusting are synonymous. How do we know that? 
Well, look back at verse 7 of Romans 7 again. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. I have not known sin, but by the law. For I have not known lust, epithumeo, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet, epithumeo. In other words, coveting and lusting then are synonymous. Now, I've used this and broken it down before. I'm going to do it one more time in light of the message. The Greek word epithumos, the noun, is made up of two words. Epi, which is a preposition, which is upon, and thumos, which is your passion or your desire. So your lust then is whatever you set your desire upon. It could be a woman, it could be a man, it could be a house, it could be a truck, it could be money, it could be anything. So your lust then is whatever you set your desire upon. And at the same time, you're coveting because you are desiring whatever you're looking upon. Now, before I get further into the message, let me point out that normally when we think of thou shalt not covet or thou shalt not lust, we normally think of the word covet and we normally think of the word lust in a bad sense. There is a good and righteous sense of the use of the same word in the Bible. For instance, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 15, our Lord had set his desire upon eating that last Passover with his disciples. And so in Luke 22 and verse 15, he said unto them, With desire have I desired to eat this last Passover with you. And the word desired is epithumeo. It's the same word as lust. It's the same word as covet. Now, there are two other passages that use a different Greek word, but yet at the same time, the word actually means to be zealous about something or to burn with zeal. And that's when the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 31, but covet earnestly the best gifts, and I'll show to you a more excellent way. And then, of course, in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 39, he said, but covet to prophesy or covet to preach. So here the word covet, is, is used in a good sense, but it means to be zealously affected or zealously desiring that which is holy and righteous. Whenever we hear the word covet, whenever we hear the word lust, we normally think of it in a wicked or vile or bad way. Uh, however, <laughs> it can be used in a good way, but there are very few, I would suggest, that zealously desire the things of God, although we are commanded to do exactly that. So let me give you another truth in relation to this. Whenever anyone violates one part of God's law, he's guilty of all. For instance, in James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, the word of God says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one part, he is guilty of all. For he that said, do not commit adultery, also said, thou shalt not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So whenever we violate one part of God's law, we're guilty of all. Now I do want you to turn in your Bibles 
to the book of Colossians chapter 3. I've gone over this before, but I want to show it to you one more time in light of what we're talking about today. So in Colossians chapter 3, look if you would at verses 5 and 6. Galatians 3, verses 5 and 6. The Word of God says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Now the word mortify literally means to make dead. That's where we get our English word mortician from. And by the way, mortgage is related to that as well. So mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Now look at this. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, that's unnatural desires, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For things' sake, the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Now, there are several things that I want to point out. First of all, if I were to ask you about fornication or uncleanness or inordinate affections, you might could explain that. But what in the world is evil concupiscence? Well, the word evil is the Greek word kakos, which means that which is bad or evil. And the word concupiscence is epithemeo. It's the same word that's translated as lusting or coveting. So, evil concupiscence is evil, lusting, or coveting. And then it, look at it. Now, look at verse 5 again. He says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So, God is saying that all of these things involve idolatry. Not only that, in verse 6 he said, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. So covetousness then is not only idolatry, it's something that brings the wrath of God upon us. Now, I want you to look back very quickly to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. And I'm going to show you another passage and another way this same verse is translated momentarily. But if you look in Genesis, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, I want you to see the progression. Here he begins with the general and descends to the specific. In verse 17, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. That would be the entirety of his possessions. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, more specific, nor his maidservant, nor his manservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. So the prohibition begins here by referring to thy neighbor's house, and his house includes everything. So God then in this passage mentions the house first and then descends to the particulars. If you would look in your Bibles, whole Exodus chapter 20 goes, I want you to see this. Look in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, you have the law of God repeated. So if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 21, you're going to see this same command, this same prohibition, but look at it. Neither shalt thou desire thy neighbor's wife, neither shalt thou covet thy neighbor's house, his field, or his men servant, or his maid servants, his ox or his ass or anything that is thy neighbor's. Now notice if you would back in Exodus chapter 20 verse 17, 
He said, thou shalt not covet. Now here he says, thou shalt not desire. So coveting, lusting, evil desiring is still a violation of God's law. But here in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 21, he begins with a particular, that is your neighbor's wife, and then he goes to the house, and then everything that is in that house as well. So the word desire is exactly the same Hebrew word as the word covet. So in both passages now, we can see that to desire or lust is the same as coveting. Now, let me repeat a truth for you that I hope that you grasp. Unlawful lusting, desiring, and coveting are synonymous. It is possible to lust after or desire or covet a multitude of things in our day and time. But usually when we think about lust and when we think about coveting, we also think of it in relationship to sexual immorality or sexual lust. The interesting thing about the times in which we're living today, it, it's almost as if in our country we've descended into pure paganism. And paganistic immorality, you look around at all the fornication, all the wickedness that's everywhere. It kind of reminds you of the temple of Aphrodite which was in Corinth, Greece. The temple of Aphrodite had a thousand courtesans or prostitutes for the use of the visitors who visited the temple of Aphrodite. So it, it almost seems like the same is going on today. I never will forget, I preached years ago in Kentucky and the pastor said, you know, he said, it's strange. He said, Kentucky used to be known for its beautiful women and fast horses. Now it's known for its beautiful horses and fast women. Well, that's just about the true of every state is what it amounts to. But I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, I'm telling you all of this because I'm going to bring it down to some specifics in just a moment. Look in 2 Peter chapter 3. And verse 1. Look at what the Bible says. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Peter writes to these Christians, these believers, and he says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Now, what if I wrote a letter to you and I said, I won't to stir up your pure mind. The word pure is from the Greek word which means to be pure, to be sincere, to be unsullied, and one that is found pure by the examination of light. Moreover, the Word of God tells us that we must have a pure mind. It tells us something else. In Philippians 2 and verse 5, he said, Let this mind be in you, which also was in 
Christ Jesus. So clearly our Lord Jesus Christ had a pure mind. And if we have the mind of Jesus Christ, then we're going to have a pure mind as well. So let me make a statement and listen carefully. It should grieve you when you have impure thoughts in your mind. It does me. And I fight against those things just like you fight against those things. And you know, the Apostle Paul said, I die daily. The Christian life is a battle. We are always battling our flesh and the world. Now, let me mention something to you. Here's the truth. Whoever or whatever controls the mind controls the body. Whoever or whatever controls the mind controls the body. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 23 and verse 7, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs 4 and verse 23, keep thy heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. So let me just again underline in your mind that whoever, whatever controls that mind controls that body. Now, I'm going to say the same thing, but I'm going to say it differently. So I want you to listen to this. It is only as we have the mind of Jesus Christ that we have a pure mind and we will be submissive to his word and his will. It's just that simple. Everything begins in the mind. So that means if I pick up this phone, I thought about it before I did it. If I pick up this piece of paper, I thought about it before I did it. Every action begins in the mind. Now, I want to show you what the will of God is for each one of you. You say, you don't know the will of God for my life. I do in a number of things because those numbers of things are stated very clearly in the Bible. For instance, if you will turn back in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and let's begin reading there with verse 3, I can show you the will of God for your life stated in black and white. Here it is. Look at this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, let's just read verse 3 through 8, and then I'll come back. Look in verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God. There it is, black and white. This is the will of God for you as a believer. He said, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, your holiness, that you should abstain from fornication. Let me just stop. I'm going to say this now. Fornication is a very, very broad term. I remember years ago when I started preaching, I asked some older preachers the difference between fornication and adultery. And I got this standard answer. Well, fornication is before marriage and adultery is after marriage. That's not true. Fornication is a very, very broad word. Pornea. It includes adultery. It includes bestiality. It includes sodomy. 
It includes any and every sexual impurity imaginable. It also includes pornography. When we get our English word pornography, we get it from the Greek. The word porn is from pornea. Graphe is the Greek word for writing. Pornography means fornication writing. That's all it means. So, so this is a very, very broad term. So look what he says now in verse 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel, that would be your body, in sanctification and honor. I can't possess Steve's vessel or body, and he can't possess mine. We have a duty and responsibility to possess our bodies in sanctification and honor. Then he tells you the negative, not in the lust of concupiscence, that is, evil lusting or desiring, even as the Gentiles are the unsaved, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter or the matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have also forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Now look what he says. He therefore that despiseth, that is, despises the will of God, that's listed in verse 3 and explained all the way down. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given us his Holy Spirit. So he says, look, this is the will of God for you, that you know how to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor. Now, that we've established this principle, here's the will of God for each one of us, that we know how to possess our vessel, our body, in sanctification and honor. I want you now to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And I want you to look at verses 27 and 28 at what our Lord said. Now, please remember what I told you earlier. Everything begins in the mind. Everything. So our Lord said in Matthew 5 and verse 27, You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now, I want to clarify verse 28. The word look is more than a slight look. It's more than a glancing. It's more than an acknowledging of something. Alice and I have been riding down the road, and I would see a beautiful woman. I'd say, boy, that's a pretty woman there. Oh, as she was. Or I would say to Alice, that young woman has a beautiful smile. And she did. That's not what this word is talking about. Uh, the Greek word is the word blepo, which means to see, yes, to perceive by the use of the eyes, to gaze upon and to observe and to direct the thoughts to that object. So, there is more then to this looking than just saying, well, that's a handsome fellow, or that's a beautiful woman over there. Now, I can put together 
verse 28, in three words. Looking and lusting. In other words, that's what the word looking actually refers to. Looking and lusting. Now, to think about this, I've had women tell me concerning certain men, that man or those men undress me with their eyes. That was far more than a glance. That was far more than noticing someone was beautiful or noticing that someone was desirable. In other words, that is when you are pondering. That is when you're thinking. That is when you are considering. Now, here's an interesting thing. When our Lord said in verse 28, But I say unto you that whosoever looketh a woman to lust after her, look at this, hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Hath committed is an aorist active indicative. It means it's something that has happened. It is a done deal. It is over with. It has happened. Wow. That's what our Lord said. Now, I told you earlier that sin begins in the mind. Let me remind you of James 1, verses 13 through 15. The scripture says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now listen carefully. But every man is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Every man is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now, let me just point this out. It is not a sin to be tempted. Our Lord was tempted. Read Matthew chapter 4. It's not a sin to be tempted. The sin comes in yielding to the temptation. And that which leads us into temptation and to yield to it happens to be our own lust. You remember that old adage that we have down in the South? You can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop him from building a nest in your hair. So the flesh in the world can throw thoughts in your mind quicker than lightning can flash. It's not a sin for that thought to go through your mind. The sin comes when you back that thought up and you say, yeah, I'd like that. Let me think about this. So clearly then, the looking and lusting normally go together. Unhappily, it doesn't just stop there. Even though our Lord said in Matthew 5 and verse 28 that it's a done deal. You've already done it mentally. You've already done it spiritually. I want to show you something else. I want you to go back in your Bibles to the book of Job, right before the book of Psalms, and I want us to go to Job 31. Job 31. And I want to read the first 12 verses. Job 31, and let's look at this. Look what Job said. Please keep in mind now that sin begins in the mind 
the heart. In verse 1, Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? For what portion of God is there from above? And what inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is not destruction to the wicked and a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity? Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? If I have walked with vanity, or if my foot hath hastened to deceit, let me be weighted in an even balance, that God may know mine integrity. If my step hath turned out of the way, <clears throat> and mine heart walked after mine eyes, and if any blot hath cleaved to my hands, then let me sow and let another eat. Yea, let my offspring be rooted out. If mine heart had been deceived by a woman, or if I've laid wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind upon unto another, and let others bow down upon her. For this is a heinous crime, yea, it is iniquity to be punished by the judges. For it is a fire that consumeth to destruction, and would root out all mine increase. Now, <clears throat> I want you to go back to verse 1. Job said, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? Job, of course, was a married man. The word think here is the Hebrew word b'nai, which means to consider, to be attentive to, and to consider diligently. So he's asking, why in the world should he even consider diligently a maid? He should not because he was married. Now look at verse 7. Look at what he said here. And think about this in light of Proverbs, not Proverbs, but Matthew 5 and verse 28. Look, if you would, in verse 7. He said, if my step hath turned out of the way and mine heart walked after mine eyes. In other words, I saw the eyes desired, <clears throat> and then his heart walked after it. Now, you need to also skip down to verse 9. He said, if my heart had been deceived by a woman, or if I've laid wait at my neighbor's door. I'm going to point this out. <clears throat> Looking and lusting leads to thinking and contemplation. And thinking and contemplation leads to a deliberation or planning and action or conduct. In other words, that's when you actually plan to have that which is forbidden, that which God absolutely says you shall not do. Now, this is why it's imperative that husbands and wives understand their duties and their responsibilities to each other. I'm going to make a statement, and I think I'm going to prove it to you from Scripture. You may disagree with me at first. I know that every individual is responsible for his own sin. I understand that. 
But I'm also going to say this. I firmly believe that there are many spouses that have caused their spouse to sin and or commit adultery. How so? How could that be true? The answer is by fraud and theft. You say, what are you talking about? Well, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I will show it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And let's begin reading there with verse 1. In fact, I want to read through verse 5, and then I'm going to come back. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now let me just stop right there and explain that. I, I'm not going to go any further. Does that mean <clears throat> that I can't shake Sharon's hand? Does that mean I can't hug Lorraine's neck? No, that's not what he's talking about. When he says, now concerning things whereof you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, that is to touch her lustfully or inappropriately doesn't mean shaking her hand, doesn't mean hugging her neck. If it's inappropriate, it's wrong. This is what he's saying. Don't touch a woman like that or don't touch a man like that, ladies. Now, look what he says. Here's how you know that's what it means. Verse 2, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Hang on. Defraud you not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again that Satan tipped you not for your incontinency. Wow. So, here is a wonderful truth. When you got married, you acquired a debt. You became a debtor. The husband, the Bible says, owes the wife due benevolence. And the wife owes the husband do benevolence. What in the world does this mean? Well, let's take the word do. D-U-E. I suppose probably everyone in this room has gotten a bill at one time or the other in their lives, and it'll have at the bottom amount what? Due. That means you owe it. That's what they want you to pay. The interesting thing is the word due is the Greek word othello, which means to owe a debt and to be in debt. So when you married then, you incurred a debt. You have a debt to each other, and you, have, you owe each other to provide for each other lovingly and sexually. This is true, and it's proven by verse 4. Look at verse 4. The wife hath not power over her own body, 
but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Now the word power refers to the word uh, power, right, authority, jurisdiction, even mastery. So the truth of the matter is, I would have power, jurisdiction, mastery over my wife. She would have power, jurisdiction, and mastery over me. So, he says, look, there is a due benevolence. And here it is, it's a debt because you owe it. What about the word benevolence? What in the world is that? Well, look at it. The Greek word happens to be eunoia. And it literally means goodwill or kindness. In other words, when we're talking about this debt that the husband owes the wife and the wife owes the husband, it talks about goodwill and kindness. In other words, there should be no grudging, no halting, no hesitating, no manipulating in supplying each other's needs. It's owed, but it is a debt that is to be fulfilled by kindness and goodwill. Now, thirdly, I want you to look at this. Failure to pay this debt is theft, pure and simple. Look what he said in verse 5. Defraud you not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Now, when a debt is owed, when a debt is owed, and you refuse to pay it, what is it? It's theft and fraud. And that's exactly what God calls it in verse 5. He says, defraud you not one the other. The Greek word is apostoreo, when literally it means to rob, to steal, to defraud, and to despoil. So scripture is telling us that the only lawful time that a husband or wife may withhold themselves from the other is by a mutual agreement for a short or brief period of fasting and prayer. And then he says, come together again for your in, before Satan tempts you for your incontinency. In other words, uh, don't tarry too long. Now, he's not, uh, he's not talking about... Uh, sickness or being incapacitated in this passage he's assuming here that everybody is well no problems but he's saying this is the only time that you can really withhold yourself when there is mutual consent so i want you to think about this because i'm going to ask you a question in light of these verses what is the attitude what is the conduct and the action of someone that deems himself defrauded or stolen from or robbed? You get a sense of hurt. You get a sense of betrayal. For instance, if you were to walk outside 
And there's a masked individual sticking a pistol in your face and saying, give me everything that you have. And you pull out all your money and give it to that individual. I'll take the watch. I'll take your belt. If there's a lady, I'll take your earrings. I'll take your jewelry. Now, that's bad enough. Well, what if the mask fell off? And you found out it was your husband or your wife or some family member or your best friend. Would you not have a sense of rejection? Would you not have a sense of a betrayal? I, I, I'm just simply pointing out the fact that if something like this happened, by nature, there is a desire then to get even and to get back at someone who caused the betrayal and caused the hurt and caused the heartache. So, this is what I'm talking about when people then refuse, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, to give due benevolence to their mate, then they are pushing that individual into sin by rejecting their needs and by refusing to pay the debt that they owe. Now, I want you to look in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 16, because here's something that is also amazing. Luke 16 and verse 18. Luke 16 and verse 18. Look at this. Our Lord, in this passage, makes this statement. Luke 16, verse 18. Look at it. Our Lord said, Whoso putteth away his wife, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from the husband, committeth adultery. In other words, it's true on either the husband or the wife. Now, the interesting thing about this verse are the words, put it away. The Greek word is the word apoluo, and it means to dismiss, to set free, to let go. And yes, it is used of divorce, but it also has a meaning to repudiate and to dismiss. It also happens to be a present active participle, which means it's an ongoing process. In other words, there are husbands and wives that are repudiating and dismissing their spouse on a constant and continual basis. I've preached for 59 years. I've counseled an awful lot of people. I know right now, I know husbands and wives who are living together as husbands and wives, but they've repudiated and dismissed each other, and they're actually living more like brothers and sisters. They've dismissed each other. They've repudiated each other. They're refusing to pay the debt that they owe. 
They've deserted each other, although they're living in the same house. And desertion is sin. The unity and the union is gone. The love and the romance happen to be gone as well. So here's my question. What in the world is going to happen when there's no way to release or manage God-given desires? And the answer is, the results will either be mental, emotional, or physical sins, or all, the, all of them. In other words, husbands owe their wives, and wives owe their husbands. They are indebted to each other, and a failure to pay what they owe is theft and fraud. That's what Scripture says. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. I would encourage everybody to read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 probably on a regular basis. But I want you to see what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 5, beginning with verse 15. Proverbs 5 and verse 15. Look at this. God says, Drink waters out of thine own cistern, and running waters out of thine own well. Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad, and rivers of water in the streets. Let them be only thine own, and not strangers with thee. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. Let her be as the loving hind in pleasant robe. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. Now look at verse 20. I'm going to come back to this. And why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? Now let me ask you a question. How in the world can a husband rejoice with his wife and be satisfied with her love if there is a repudiation of the marital debt. How can a wife rejoice with her husband if there is a repudiation of the marital debt? You have to remember 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman her own husband. So in order then to obey God and not to covet lust or desire others, a husband and a wife must take care of each other's needs, period. And when we realize that God has sovereignly ordained and given us our spouses, we must obey him because he has placed the debt of due benevolence upon the husbands and the wives. Now, listen to me. A fulfilling relationship keeps our minds upon our spouses and hinders our minds from wandering. When our minds do wander, they must always come back to the spouse. Sin may be in our minds, and sin may be in our bodies, but it is not the lorded over us, it is not our king, it is not our ruler. I want you to look in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 6, and look, if you would, please, at verses 12 and 13. Look what God says. Romans chapter 6, at verses 12 and 13. Look at this. Romans 6, verse 12. God says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Now stop right there. He did not say, Let not sin therefore be in your mortal bodies. It's in our bodies. 
But he said, don't let it rain. It has no authority to rain because we have submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. So he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. In other words, we must learn that we are no longer under sin as a king. It may be in us, but it has no authority and no right to rule us. So that means whenever lustful or unclean or impure thoughts enter our mind, they must be rejected, they must be repudiated, because Jesus Christ is our king and not sin. Now, I want to go back to that provocative question in Proverbs 5 and verse 20. Where God asked, and why wilt thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? Or you could turn it around and say, why wilt thou, my daughter, be ravished with a strange man and embrace the bosom of a stranger? If you have a kind and loving and benevolent spouse at home, why in the world would you want a stranger? When you stop and think a stranger is not interested in you, a stranger doesn't care one thing about you, the stranger is only interested in himself or herself. And you and I must learn a very practical lesson. Grass is not greener on the other side. It's dead on the other side. So when we think about this, thou shalt not covet, it's thou shalt not lust. Thou shalt not desire unlawfully. Whether it is an automobile, a house, a farm, a woman, a man, it doesn't matter. Now, let me try to make a couple of applications and tie things together for you. The one truth that will dispel covetousness and fight against covetousness is biblical contentment. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We have to learn to be content with the spouses that God has sovereignly and providentially given to us. We have to be content with such things as he's given us. I, I use this all the time. Why in the world would you, anyone want to go window shopping? when they don't have any money. That's like me going down to the Ford dealership or the Chevrolet dealership and looking at those eighty and $100,000 four-wheel drive pickup trucks. Why would I ever look at something like that? I couldn't buy it. And if I had the money, I wouldn't buy it. <laughs> I wouldn't spend that kind of money on a truck. I mean, stop and think about this. Why can we not be satisfied with our spouses. He told us to rejoice with the wife of our youth. <laughs> I still remember what Alice was wearing the very first time I ever met her. In fact, I asked her about it this week. I asked her, does she still have that skirt and that little sweater? <laughs> she said, no, if I had it, I couldn't fit in it. <laughs> Well, she weighed 98 pounds when I met her, Dinah. <laughs> I, 
I still remember her first words too. She looked at me. <laughs> she said, you look like my husband. I said, are you married? She smiled said, not yet. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. <laughs> she also promised me that when we got old and I got hard of hearing, she'd never forget my hearing aids, but she did today. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> but contentment. You know, I, I've, I've thought about this so many times that I tell people, why I'm like Job. Why in the world should I ever think about or consider what we would call a pretty young thing when I got a pretty old thing? I mean, after 61 years, I'm going to keep her. I'm not going to trade her in. I mean, my goodness. Contentment, that's what he's talking about. Now, if I were to, if, if you were to ask me, have I seen women more beautiful than Alice? Yes. If you were to ask her, have she seen men more handsome than me? She'd probably say yes. But that's immaterial. God in his providence gave us each other and that's it. Contentment. Here's the second one. If God has not given you a wife or a husband, you may lawfully seek a godly spouse. But in his sovereign providence, if he does not give you one, you must be content. God does not call everyone to this state of marriage. He said in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 20, let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. I've got friends that are in their 50s. They've never been married. Have no desire to be married. They're happy just like they are. And truthfully, some of them, I don't know any woman that would live with them anyhow. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just simply saying, you know, God does not call everyone to the state of marriage. It's just that simple. But whatever he does, we're to be content with it. We may lawfully seek something that is biblical and godly, but we're not to unlawfully sin against God by coveting and lusting. Now, let me end with one scripture. That's Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 16. The Bible says, He that hateth covetousness shall prolong his days. If we want to live long and healthy lives, we must live a godly life and we must learn to hate covetousness. When God says thou shalt not covet, He's saying, thou shalt not lust. Thou shalt not desire that which I have forbidden, that which is not yours in any way whatsoever. And if we want to live a long life, we must learn to hate covetousness. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we bow to thee this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us pure, in our minds, holy in our thoughts, and godly in our conduct and our actions. May, Father, we praise Thee for Your love and grace to us, for the instruction in Your Word, 
which you have designed, Lord, for our good and for your glory. Give us, Lord, we pray, a desire to please thee and to walk according to thy law. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask and pray. Amen.